0: Well, if you're visiting this morning, you have landed at a a good time to be here. Uh, It's the new year, and uh, we've started a new sermon series on last Sunday. This is the second installment in that series. We've called it the State of Our Union, completely ripping off from what happens this time of year with our uh, presidential um, responsibilities. We wanted to use this time of year, these first five Sundays, to reflect on who and what God has called us to be and do as a local church. Um, The members of, of the church will know if you're visiting with us, we sort of define our mission in the church with five objectives. So our mission is we exist to glorify God by making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. And for us, that breaks down into five objectives or five strategies. Uh, Number one, sharing the message of the gospel. We call these our five M's, the the message of the gospel, which we considered last week. Number two, showing mercy to our neighbors. Mercy to our neighbors, which we'll think about this morning. Number three, we want to shepherd one another to maturity. We want to shepherd one another to maturity in Christ with God's help, we'll think about next week. Number four, we want to seek to multiply. Uh, We want to grow the number of pastors and leaders, not only of this church, but but we pray, go to other churches and serve. And we want to multiply the number of gospel preaching churches in communities like ours in the city and around the country. And finally, we want to send missionaries. We want, in our DNA, the sending of missionaries to uh, the far-flung places of the globe to make the gospel known and to plant churches. You guys cozy or? <laughs> we all right? Okay. Um, those are our five M's. That's what, that's what we're about. That's what we're up to. That defines our mission. And this morning we want to think about uh, showing mercy. And each of these sermons will have the same basic outline, right? We're kind of taking stock in this sermon series. So we'll just, number one, do a quick little refresher on the principle itself. What do we mean by showing mercy? And number two, we want to go on to talk about our progress so far. So Lord willing, in April we'll be a three-year-old church. Uh, So we're just a brand new church. We're a baby of a church. Uh, And so we want to look at what God has done in His grace in the first couple of years uh, of our effort at being a church family. So we want to talk about our progress. Number three, we want to talk about our plan going forward. What are some things that we can do to sort of grow in this aspect of our mission? And number four, I want to sort of, the fourth P is perspective. I want to do a little pastoral work to set our perspective as a church family, a young church family, as we think about these things. Everybody with me? Amen. All right, so this morning we're thinking about um, this this M of mercy, of showing mercy. And to do that, we want to turn to the little letter of Jude. Jude's letter, verses twenty to 23 is the conclusion of this letter. Uh, Jude has written to these uh, saints that are scattered throughout the world and uh, he's writing to them about a particular problem. These false teachers who have crept into the church uh, without them noticing and has corrupted the the scripture. They've corrupted the gospel and the faith uh, and have led many people into error. Jude beginning in verse 20 through verse 23 stained by the flesh. As you know, this is not normally, if you're visiting with us, normally I'll, we'll take a book of the Bible and I'll take a passage of Scripture and we'll just work that passage and explain that passage through the sort of entire sermon, trying to give the main meaning of that passage in the sermon. Uh, this is a little bit more topical. We'll bounce around the Bible a little bit. Uh, not so much a close exposition, but, but an opportunity for us to reflect on God's call in our lives. Uh, and, And we might sort of take this topic then, or these four verses, and break them down this way. The first two verses, 20 and 21, have to do with God's mercy to us in the gospel. And the second two verses have to do with our mercy then to others. So if you're just sort of summarizing these four verses, you might summarize it this way, that God's mercy in the gospel creates mercy in the Christian. That God has been merciful to us, So we must be merciful to others. Natural question at this point would be, well, how has God been merciful to us? It's alluded to there in the first couple of verses where Paul says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. God's been merciful to us first by loving us and then by treating us better than our sins deserve through Jesus Christ, his son. He loved us before the foundation of the world. Before any of us had done anything, God in His infinite matchless love looked down upon a people and set His heart on them. And that was all of mercy because we hadn't done anything. We hadn't earned that love. We had not sort of made ourselves lovely before God. In fact, we had ruined our relationship with God because of sin and we had forfeited any claims on His love. He would have been right to reject us. But he was merciful. Again, mercy is treating someone better than they deserve. Punishing them less than they deserve. And so rather than crush us because of our sin and punish us with eternal damnation in hell, God sent his son into the world. Dressed in our flesh. To live the life we could not live. And to die the death that we deserve. And when Jesus is dying on the cross, God is saying, I love you and I'm being merciful to you. Because Jesus took the punishment in our place. We got better than we deserved. We deserved hell, but he gave us heaven. We deserved to be left and abandoned, but he gave us love and adoption. We deserve to be sent away, but he made us sons and daughters. That's what mercy did for us. And so this first passage of the scripture is a reminder of this infinite mercy that God has shown the world and it's mercy and love that he shows to us even now. So if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, this is God's main message to you. I love you and I'm merciful And though your sins are red as scarlet, come, I'll make them white as snow. I will cleanse you of your sin and forgive you of your sin and adopt you into my family. And I will give you things you do not deserve, even up to and including my kingdom. That's the offer of the gospel to every sinner who will receive it, who will confess their sins, turn away from them and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, as their personal Lord and Savior and follow Him in the obedience that comes from faith. If you're visiting with us this morning, you want to know more about that. Keep listening to the sermon. Talk with us after the service. Talk to the Christian friend who brought you. This is why we exist. This is the main reason we exist is to help people enter into the love and mercy of God. And beloved, this text teaches us that, that mercy, that, 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 that this love that we've entered into has a shape. You might have noticed it as we read verses 20 and 21. Those three chief Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love. Along with prayer. Jude writes there, but you beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. in the the religion that we have received from Jesus, in the teaching that we have gotten from the apostles, we are to go to the word and together build ourselves up, edify one another, strengthen one another in the faith. And then notice there, not only faith, but uh, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's a marvelous phrase, isn't it? If we were doing a whole exposition of Jude, we'd look back in the first couple of verses there where Jude writes there, to those who are called... Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. There, Jude is talking about God's love toward us in the gospel. And here he's calling us to return that love by keeping ourselves in God's love. He first loved us. Now we love him. And then we're waiting with hope. For the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We have been saved. We are being saved. And we're looking to the completion of that salvation when the Lord Jesus comes. And all of it from beginning to end, beloved, is a gift of mercy. We haven't earned it. We have forfeited it. But God has given it to us in His rich kindness. Now we are meant to be a people then who receive mercy and then notice in the second part verses 22 and 23 we turn out on the world in showing mercy and there are three categories of persons there if you will have mercy on those who doubt. So what does mercy look like with someone who's struggling with faith? Well, It looks like coming next to them getting a cup of coffee and a meal while they're in the midst of their doubts and not after their doubt has won and convincing them of the truth, reasoning with them from the scripture, turning them again to the rock-solid foundation, which is Jesus Christ the Lord. So we're meant to be merciful to those who doubt, and we're meant to be merciful to those who are in danger. Look at the second phrase there, save others by snatching them out of the fire. This, is, this issue of mercy is an urgent business. There are people on their way to the fire We might take that in one of two ways. We might be thinking in terms of that fire of eternal judgment where those who die apart from Christ face a very real hell and the Christian mission is to snatch them, to sort of aggressively grab them and pull them back from the, the precipice, from the brink of falling into God's judgment. Or we might think of this fire in the context of Jude where he talks so much about illicit and worldly passions and carnal living. As snatching them from those kinds of temptations, those kinds of desires that, that burn within us. Teaching them to walk in a, a new way of life and a, and a holiness of life. And then we see a third category there. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Mercy with fear, with reverence to God, with respect for our Father. Not like we're saviors. This is the problem with that word mercy. Mercy is a close cousin to the word justice. And it's interesting as I look out and see how people react to those two terms, you can get a couple of different reactions. People hear the word justice, they get suspicious. You must be one of them liberals. Hmm? What are you talking about, justice? Justice. And not without reason because many people in the name of, of justice have advocated a lot of things that are just contrary to the Bible. Amen. But if you say mercy, almost everybody goes, yeah, we should be merciful. And, and, and here's why. That sneaky little thing called pride, when we hear the word mercy, it kind of puts us in the savior seat, doesn't it? We think of ourselves as the ones sort of condescending, lowering ourselves to help somebody else less fortunate than us. Beloved, there's nobody less fortunate than us. We were hell-bound sinners. That is unfortunate. And all that we have, we have is a gift from God. What do we have that we did not first receive? And so when Jude says here in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to show mercy with fear, I think he's helping us with our perspective, with our attitude, that we've not come into Anacostia, into Southeast, as some collection of saviors. We ain't Jesus. And we not come here as people so together and so whole that we don't have our own need for mercy. We are needy people too. We are broken people too. And we tremble before a holy God that if he were to count our sins against us, we could not stand. But we are altogether dependent upon His mercy from beginning to end. And we have come simply as ambassadors of mercy to others who, like us, need it. And so this is the principle. We are to be merciful because God has shown us mercy. Jesus puts it this way in Luke chapter 6 verse 36, just these very words, be merciful even as your Father in heaven is merciful. Our our mercy shows our likeness to our God. And beloved, without mercy, Jesus tells us that we are hypocritical Pharisees. Matthew 23 verse 23, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, but why? For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You see, they were religious to the point of sacrifice in very small things. They had scruples about tithing, even tithing mint and dill and cumin. But they had swallowed the camel when it came to mercy and justice and steadfastness. And Jesus says you should not have left undone the first. You should be scrupulous about your religious life and pay attention to the details of your religious life. But there's this massive weighty matter of God's word, of the law, called justice and mercy and faithfulness. That you should have done too. And because they hadn't, Jesus called them hypocrites. Have you thought that showing mercy to our neighbors is actually an indication of whether or not we are true followers or hypocrites? That's how Jesus thinks about it. And he calls us to a a multi-sided kind of expression of this mercy. So when he says you should have not neglected the weightier matters of the law, and he says first of all justice, well that's what love does when it corrects a wrongdoer. And then he says mercy. That's what love does when it faces the person who's wrong. And then he says steadfastness or faithfulness. That's what love does when it just keeps on loving. We are called to these various expressions of love if we are called to be Christ's people. We're meant to be merciful. So in what ways? Again. see the three ways outlined for us there in the text, to those who doubt, to those in danger, and to those in sin. We want to show the kind of mercy that leads to faith in God, safety in the world, and freedom from sin. And so our second P is progress. How are we we doing at this? Well let's think about this a little bit Um, in terms of thinking about our neighborhood. What do we know about the the neighborhood that we've come to, and the needs for mercy that are, that are in the neighborhood. There are many ways we can get into this, and I'm a little bit, if I can be honest with you, I'm a little bit hesitant to get into this because uh, I don't like the ways in which um, it's, it's commonplace among church planters and things of that sort um, to do two things, to, to describe the community solely in terms of its statistics uh, and to begin to think that the community is sort of solely this manifestation of depravity. As if more affluent communities are not manifestations of depravity, right? So I d- I don't, I'm not encouraging that kind of, of attitude among us. And as I said before, I don't want to encourage the sense that we're some kind of superheroes or we're doing something special because we're in Southeast or we're, we're in Ward 8. We're just, we're just trying to do what the Lord said do. And when we're done, we'll all confess to Jesus, we're still not profitable servants. So as we come to these statistics, I want you to know that this is not all that the community is. And I want us to know again that that we can't do anything apart from Christ. So we might think of of three significant community challenges, and and you could have another three or another ten, but these are the three that I was thinking about uh, in preparation for our time together. One challenge is family formation. The second challenge is gainful employment. The third challenge is a school-to-prison pipeline. Those are three things I want to bring our attention to. And uh, the brothers have some slides. They're in, your, they're in your bulletins, in your sermon notebook, and also here on the, on the screen. Uh, what do we know about family structure and family formation uh, in our community? Well, there are about just under 30,000 households in our community. And you'll see there in that little circle graph that only 22% of those are married households. So almost 8 out of 10 of our households involve uh, adults and children without the benefit and without the blessing of marriage. Why is that important? Well, because in the social sciences where you never get a research consensus, you never get sort of two researchers to, to agree particularly over any number of years and over studies, about about one thing in the social sciences, on this issue, we have as close as you'll ever get to a universal consensus that everybody does better when they're raised, children do better, wives do better, husbands do better, when parents marry and raise their children. Now, for Christians who believe the Bible, that's no surprise to us because that's how God designed it. But what we find in the research is over and over and over again is that that particular family structure, when, it, when it's healthy or well enough, produces the best outcomes over a lifetime for everybody involved. Fewer children in poverty, fewer women in poverty, the there's, there's sort of incidences of abuse and neglect go down, the, the sort of home ownership rate goes up, the car ownership rate goes up, As edu- educational achievement goes up, all the way across the board, every indicator better outcomes. And so when we look at this picture, we we, we have to realize that in our context, we've got to love families as they're shaped and pray and labor and and, and sort of try to model and encourage families as God would shape them. Well, not only do we have this issue of family structure, but the next slide is income. You'll see what um, the sort of community looks like in terms of income. You'll see that the median income in Ward 8 is just a little over $30,000. By comparison, if you take D.C. as a a sort of whole city, the median income in the entire city is about $75,000. So more than twice the income in a household if you're outside of Ward 8 on average than if you're in Ward 8. And there are some wards where the the median income uh, approaches $190,000, beloved. I'm going to tell you what median income is. That's not the average. That's if you took all the incomes and sort of ordered them in, in order and you pulled out the income right in the middle. So right in the middle of some wards are people who are making $190,000. Compare that to Ward 8. You see, the, you see what's seen in the next little slide there. The concentration of poverty. 37, almost 40% of people below the poverty line. 50% of children living in poverty. 25% of our seniors. And that's because of the next slide. In part, we think about unemployment. You see there that unemployment rates in the city um, by ward and and that first column is on average in the whole city. I think in the whole city just under 12%. You come over to column the last column, in Ward Eight, that's closer to twenty nine percent. This is the kind of structural poverty and unemployment that, that we're facing in the ward. Well, what about our young people? Just a couple of slides to think about our our young people here, and and here these are just two slides that are, I think in some ways, illustrative. They don't make the whole case, but illustrative of this notion of school to prison pipeline. This is the the sort of um, suspension and expulsion rates, a little bit dated back in 2012. Suspension and expulsion rate by ward. Again, you got ward one on the left, ward seven and eight all the way on the other side. Notice Ward 8, our ward, accounts for about 40% of all the suspensions and expulsions in the city. If you Include Ward 7 where Jeremy is in the Mercy of Christ uh, Fellowship Church plant. It's another 19%. So more than half of expulsions and uh, suspensions are young people in our community. And you ask yourself the question, well what happens if a young person isn't in school? Well short answer, nothing good. Nothing good. They don't, they don't get the education that they need. They don't have the adult supervision that's needed. get involved in any number of things that many of us got involved in uh, when we were that age. These slides, just for the biographical moment, these slides feel like my teenage years. Arrested after my sophomore year. Grew up in a single family home. Out dibbling and dabbling and stuff I shouldn't have been dibbling and dabbling in. And these statistics now are, are not just numbers, but, but they're faces like mine like some of you, these are persons that we're talking about. So look at the next slide. You saw the numbers of folks expo- expelled and suspended. Look at the next slide there from the uh, Department of Youth and Rehabilitative Services talking about the number of youth who are under supervision. Again, Ward 7 and 8, more than half of them are right here in some way involved in the, the juvenile criminal justice system and perhaps on their way to adult corrections. That's the snapshot. We look at it a number of ways. And that snapshot occurs, uh, beloved, not just because persons are making bad choices, that does happen. But that snapshot occurs also because there are forces acting upon communities that are much bigger than those persons that have significant devastating effects. So let me give you the next slide. This is from a site called blackdemographics.com. They're just doing a little layover of the war on drugs and its effect on black marriage in the 80s and 90s. About 86% of African American men marry African American women. About 94% of African American women if they marry will marry African American men. But what happens if the number of marriageable men is dramatically affected in any community? How does that effect take place? Well this is one snapshot, it's not the whole picture but this is one snapshot of it. If you start over to the left back in 1890 now get that in your head, this is just 30 years after emancipation. 30 years after slavery only less than 10% of black men over 35 never married. So 90% or so of black men over 35 married right on the aftermath of slavery. And beyond, And it stays pretty stable, you notice, until we come up to the, about the 1970s or so. Notice where the, the, blacks, the black prison population is in, in, back around 1910. When we first start to have some statistics. There were about 23,000 black men in prison there around 1910. And those numbers stay pretty much the same too. Until you come up to the 1970s, 1980s. A couple things happened in the 1970s and 1980s. 1971 or 73, uh, the country switches its divorce rules to no-fault divorce, making divorce much easier, indicating, I think, a cultural slide in the whole country in its valuation of marriage and the centrality of marriage and family. And beloved, when the country catches a cold, black folk catch a flu. The other thing that happens in that, in that period here is the, the sort of beginning of regimes, policy regimes that are getting tough on crime. So you see there that yellow bar from 80 to 2000 you got Republican and Democratic administrations there so this is not about being partisan. You're Reagan, Bush and Clinton and in my estimation Clinton was the worst of them all. <laughs> Just factually. Not partisan. So you get the, the sort of You get the putting in place of the war on drugs and you'll see how the prison population and the never married rate among black men skyrockets. And those are not unrelated, beloved. Those are not unrelated because the prisons are filled with men in the prime of their age. And when they're out, it's not like they've done their time but they've got to check the box And they've got to live with that stigma, and they're shut out of so many opportunities from that point on. So a 15-year-old kid like myself who was stupid and got arrested can't now be a 47-year-old pastor who's thought of differently. Because we have adopted a policy regime that hangs that scarlet letter on these persons for their life. And that's just had dramatic effects on our communities. That's the context we're in. The Lord has called us to labor in a context where large scale social, political, and economic forces have dramatic and devastating impact on people who yes are sometimes often making very poor individual choices as well. We live and minister where people are being crushed by forces they cannot change. So what do you do? a little church, 130 some odd people after our last members meeting. We're not a mega church. We don't have a, a ton of resources. We don't have some big policy think tank and things of that sort. What do we do? Well, let me tell you what we tried so far uh, and then talk about what we want to try to do going forward. We'll borrow here from um, our brother with uh, CCCD, John Perkins. Uh, as he talks about community redevelopment, he often talks about in terms of the three R's. Relocation, uh, redistribution, and reconciliation. And I just want to frame the, the meager efforts we've made thus far in terms of those three R's. Relocation. Listen, again, we're not, we're not saviors, but beloved, as we talked about last week, uh, we know that being close to ministry needs increases the possibility of serving and affecting those needs. Well, let me put it another way. Only by joining a community... Does a community's needs become our own? So as many of us as possible, beloved, we, I want to encourage us to move into the community for, for that kind of solidarity and empathy so that the community's needs become our needs and so that our abilities, whatever they are, become a part of the community's abilities and assets. So we need to have a personal stake in the development of our neighbors. And that stake is I think more deeply made if we live with them as neighbors. Relocation. Secondly thing, so that's the first thing we just try to encourage as a church plants. That all of us come not as gentrifiers but as neighbors and all of us come not to sort of honker down and hide in our homes but to to be out and to, to meet our neighbors and to share what Christ has shared with us as an expression of mercy and mission. So number two, redistribution. We, we, we tried to put our resources into places where they're needed. And, and we've done this in a, a small way to begin, but let me give you just a few examples of those. We've, we've tried to give to need. So in 2016, we invested a little over $15,000 in benevolence, helping members and others to uh, sort of meet some urgent needs of, of, of their own. 2012 there's about 13000 and in this year we've allocated about $30,000 just to benevolence and trying to sort of meet financial needs in that way. And as the Lord has given us opportunity to partner with organizations in the community, we've also tried to be financially supportive of them. So we've given in this last year $7,500 to the high school to do things like purchase meals for students on test days and uh, provide other kinds of materials and things in the classroom. We've done the same with Cornerstone Schools. We've uh, partially supported a scholarship there to go to uh, that Christian school, classical education school which we love and some of you serve at. We've given another uh, $7,500 I believe it is to the House DC uh, which works with school age youth who after school or, or who aren't eligible for other school programs trying to work on that issue of uh, kids being out of school and having no place to go and no, nothing to do. And so we have tried to redistribute in some measure. And thirdly, we've sought to to see the power of the gospel expressed in reconciliation. This means we have to have a relational approach to ministry, beloved. It means we have to support the development of people. And we've tried to do that in some ways. I know a good number of you volunteer in organizations all across the city. So we've not tried to overly program that. We're just encouraging that we're living those kinds of lives as Christians. Uh, And then we've tried in ways to create supportive organizations in the community. And I say try it here because it's hard. In our first year quite a number of us, it may have been 12 or 14 of us, got involved with the principal at the time in trying to sort of get a parent-teacher-student association off the ground. That's hard. And ultimately not successful, at least not yet. But everything we know about sort of academic performance and things of that sort, we, we have to have parents involved in the lives of the kids in the school, for the school to be successful. So we've been trying to crack that nut. Um, Pastor Jahil was involved with Sarah Pankratz and others in developing a, a mentorship program at Cornerstone Schools. And many of you have volunteered for that mentorship program. And I, I think it's a success, but that program has now been adopted by the Southeast uh, White House uh, and fall into some of their mentoring activities. Praise God for that. Um, and then we are right now in the process of trying to start, on behalf of the school, a Friends of Anacostia uh, organization an organization that's dedicated to, to fundraising and, and helping to improve the quality of things here at the high school. If you go to some of the more affluent wards, man, they've got school um, friends, organizations that are raising hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, funding positions, needed positions like so- social work positions, so on and so forth. This school where the needs are greatest actually is in a city whose funding formula punishes those who are at greater deficit. And so we need to both at the policy level figure out a way to how as citizens to bring leverage to bear on that. But in the meantime as a church these are the kinds of things we want to be involved in to make, a, to make a contribution to our community and to build institutions we pray make a difference. Or think of DC 127. Our sister Abby Sagai has volunteered to be a liaison with us with that organization and many of you have been interested in volunteering and helping. We, we just have to find ways to keep families together to keep them out of the child welfare system, uh, if if possible, and to see them sort of flourish and develop, that's just going to be good for everybody. So these are some things that we've tried in these first couple of years. Now, these are drops in the bucket compared to the overwhelming needs in our community. And you might be tempted to think, and this is nothing, we need to do more. And others may be thinking, man, there's no way this little bitty church can change this whole community. You might even be thinking, this isn't even the mission of the church. Well, I want to address those thoughts in the perspective section. But for right now, let's just talk about our plan going forward. And as we did last week, we want to sort of think about this on two levels. The plans that we want to think about as a church as a whole on a sort of corporate level. Some ideas. These are, again, brown paper bag, meat and potato strategies, right? Uh, and then plans that you will want to think about personally in terms of how the Lord stirs you as an individual Christian to be involved in this aspect of our ministry. So let me start with the, the ARC plans. I got, I got kind of five things I want to lead us through and lead us to do. Number one, we need to, we need to map three things in our community. We need to map the needs that exist, the services that, and resources that exist, and we need to map where we're currently serving. One of the things that makes this feel overwhelming is we just don't have a good picture of what's out there beyond the very broad statistics like the ones I, I shared earlier. And so in some way we've got to figure out how we do a little mapping, a little community mapping of, of needs and assets, assets, and then sort of mapping who we are and what the Lord has given us to do, right? Right? So we can sort of figure out what our lane is and run in it. That's just some homework that we need to give some attention to. Uh, And by we, I mean you. Number two, (laughs) I mentioned this last week. I want to mention it again. I I want us to turn more of our small groups into block groups. So our small groups are often groups that are for discipleship of, of existing Christians and uh, we sort of turn toward each other and in on each other. And that's good. We need to do that and we need to not stop. Do, you know, we, did, we cannot stop doing that. But we need more of our groups actually very intentionally on mission on their block. Meeting neighbors, involving neighbors, doing things in the neighborhood on the block that are meant to sort of build community and build relationship so that we might actually have opportunity to share with people in deeper ways. And one of the things I want to do particularly as it relates to, to mercy is I want to take part of our funding uh, for benevolence and give it to the block groups. So those who are building relationships on the block have some, some funding to sort of meet needs as they occur without it having to sort of come up all the way through the church, all the way to the elders or the deacons. Uh, we just want to sort of equip the groups to be the front lines of ministry uh, and be the front lines of neighbor care. All right? So we want to talk more about that and work our way through that this year. Number three, we want to grow our existing partnerships with Anacostia High School, DC 127, Uh, Cornerstone and others, right? So we're not in this community by ourselves and we need to recognize that lest we fall into that Savior mentality. We're here with people who've been here long before we have been here. Some of them will be here long after some of us are gone. Uh, They're doing good work in the community uh, often without enough resources and support. And I just think it's the heart of wisdom for us to partner with people uh, who are doing good work. And so we need to build those partnerships and think through what has the Lord given us. He's given us a lot of educators, and folks who work in the educational system. It's allowed us to meet in schools and relationships with administration. That seems like low-hanging fruit to me that we should, we should pick and enjoy. Number four. At some point I pray the Lord gives us grace to staff in a way, to staff the church in a way that addresses the demographic reality of our community. What I mean very specifically there. If we were looking back at that household slide of the households in the the community are, are unmarried households. The lion's share of those are going to be households that are headed by women. A lion's share of our ministry needs to be ministry done with women, for women and so on. And that shouldn't be done by Pastor T. That should be done by women. And so I would love for us to get to the point where we are, we are able with God's help and to your generosity and so on to add at least two women's workers to the staff of the church. Women who are committed to the ministry of the gospel, to evangelism, to counseling, to discipling and walking with the many women who are here in the community. Now, the, I love God for sending us Pastor Jahil. I don't know many like him. I honestly don't. Passionate, Biblical, gracious, just seems to hug you when he greets you. What's up with the blessed man? You know, just, you know, just all over you in a wonderful way. Can you imagine a couple sisters like that? Just filled with the Holy Spirit, zealous for the things of God, eager to hug on others and care for others. Can you imagine what that would mean for ministry in this community to have that kind of access going on? with the women in the community. So pray for two (laughs) Jahillas That the Lord would make them available and make the resources available in that way. Last thing for us on sort of a church level. God is pleased to be raising up new leaders among us. Praise God for Pastor Dennis. Praise God for the nominations that we made this past Sunday of, of Precious and Lloyd. Um, but I, I, would, I pray in the, in the spirit of Acts 6 that the Lord would also raise up for us a, a couple of deacons of, of benevolence and, and mercy. So that we begin to sort of give structure and leadership to this aspect of our ministry. And so that between the sort of block groups and the individual sort of service and now sort of the the leadership of the church, there's sort of layers of attention to sort of spreading mercy in the community and being effective by God's will. So that's what I'm thinking on the church level. As you can tell, I'm no genius. If you got better ideas, I welcome them. But that's what I'm thinking there. But what about you? Your personal plans for living a merciful life in the community with us. Whether you live in the community or whether you're getting more of your social life and routine into the community. Three questions to consider. You ask yourself what is my plan for personally showing mercy to our neighbors? How are you going to walk that out? What specifically are you going to give your attention to and time to? Maybe you're going to volunteer to read, children, read the children in an elementary school. Maybe you're going to be more intentional about inviting neighbors into your home and just building relationships through hospitality and discovering ways to care for people in that way. Maybe you've got an idea. Put Caitlin on blast real quick. Sent me a great email. I asked for people to ask questions. Uh, for, in preparation for the Q&A in our members meetings. And, and one of the questions that Caitlin had, well, which I didn't answer at the members meeting, we'll answer for you now, is how is it that we develop like, new programs as a church? What's the, what's the process for that? And specifically, she was thinking about um, uh, employment programs, job training, job skills training. They've got a program like that at the House DC, which our brother Jonathan over there, there runs. We need more of that, not less of that. How does that get developed at, at ARC? Caitlin, I don't know. <laughs> it gets developed by you all, right? Uh, so this is a, a deeply charismatic view of the church. I believe the Lord has given to the church the gifted persons that he wants to put in that body for the work of the ministry, and I believe I shouldn't be in the way of that. I should encourage and equip and guide spiritually, but we'll get way more done if you're not looking at the pastors to do it but in Ephesians 4, is about the business, right? And just letting us know how we can equip and encourage. So if that's something the Lord places on our hearts, and I think that's a wonderful idea, let's just start the conversation. And let's just grow whatever He will allow us to grow, and let's pray for fruit for as long as He will make it fruit-bearing, all right? So what's your plan personally? Second question, what's your small group's plan for showing mercy to the neighbors? How, how in our small groups are we going to be more than a holy huddle, but, but sort of out caring for others? And number three, what ideas can I bring to the church family for showing mercy to our neighbors? And I just gave an example of Caitlin's. Perhaps there are others. Let's just talk this up. Let's have a conversation about how we care for people, which brings us finally to the fourth P, perspective. Let me come back to those concerns that this is a drop in the bucket. And it is. And the size of the problem is overwhelming. And it can feel that way. Now, well, let me just sort of set our perspective a little bit with a, with a couple of points. Maybe three things here that are perspective setting. Number one it's a quote from Baroness Caroline Cox. She runs something called the, in the UK called the Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust. This is an organization deeply inspired by the scriptures that that, that, that looks at sort of faith and freedom issues. In faith they go to countries where people lack freedom and they work and, and sort of advocate for, for literally freedom. Right? It takes many forms but that's the gist of it. I first heard her say this in Wales. I was at a conference and uh, it, just, it just stuck in my spirit. She's talking about how overwhelming it is to go into a place like South Sudan or how overwhelming it would be to go to a place like Syria and try to work for people's freedom. And indeed it is. And this is their mantra. She says, we cannot do everything, but we must not do nothing. We cannot do everything, beloved, as a church. And so don't let the fact that we can't do everything sort of put us into this habit of complaining, right, and criticism, and then failing to do something. But while we can't do everything we must do something. We must not do nothing. Right? And so that just needs to hang over our thinking here. We're a two year old church plant, 130 members, praise be to God. We're still getting to know the community, get our footing in the community. We still need to map what's out there, who's out there and build relationships. We're just getting started. And in our zeal we can kind of want everything going. And in our zeal we can begin to think that we're going to change everything this week. Probably not. But that does not mean that we could do nothing. We must do something. How do we want to do that? Well we want to do that number one with a neighborly heart. Here I'm thinking of Luke chapter 10 verses 25 to 37. You guys will know this passage well. This is the parable or the story of the Good Samaritan. You remember that story that Jesus tells a young religious person, one of those hypocrites really that we were talking about earlier. And he tells a story of of two religious figures walking down this dangerous road. They see a man who's been beaten and left for dead and the religious figures, even though they come through at different times, they both do the same thing. You remember what that was? They, They see the man in the street they cross to the other side of the street, right? And then they keep on on their way. And then Jesus puts an unusual suspect in the story. A Samaritan man. A man who's not Jewish a man who wasn't liked in that day and age by Jewish people. And that man comes along the road, sees the guy broken and beaten in the street, and the Bible says he had compassion on him. And with that compassion, the man goes to the guy who's beaten and left in the street. He binds his wounds, puts him on the donkey, and, and takes him on his donkey to a hotel, gets him a hotel room for however long he needs, and, and spends the night there caring for his wounds. And the next day, he tells a hotel owner, he said, listen, keep an eye on him, and when I come back, I'll pay you for whatever expenses he's incurred. And Jesus asked the man, he says, now, which of these was his neighbor?" And the man says there in Luke 10, verse 36, verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus replies, you go and do likewise. That's his word to us. Neighbors, be neighborly. Be merciful. It's okay that this community is 92% African American and you may not be. And you may sometimes feel like you're the Samaritan in the story. That's okay. Prove yourself to be the neighbor. Show mercy. And it's not okay that if we are African American and we feel quite at home in the community and and we run through our rhythms and our routines that we become like the religious folks in the parable. Comfortable crossing the street and ignoring the need. We have to go and do likewise like the Samaritan. So we need to, in terms of our perspective, understand that there's something very powerful about simply being neighbors. Think of how many needs in our community would be addressed if the Christians in the neighborhood took Jesus seriously when he said, love your neighbor. The isolation of the elders face, well that would give way to us going over to their homes a little time talking with him, sharing maybe a a meal or tea with him. The young kids running around the neighborhood clearly with no supervision and, and getting into whatever, well that neighbor would go out there and bring some chalk, draw a little hopscotch, get a couple ropes, you can take those white ropes right there if you want to, play some double dutch. That neighbor would find a way to just be outside playing with the kids, giving the kids an adult reference point and a different model for what they can be. I mean, there are a million ways to be neighborly, and being neighborly addresses a million problems that government programs cannot and should not. So what would it look like for us to take Jesus seriously when he says, love your neighbor? That's part of the perspective that we want. Here's here's another part that we want. We want to look for, we want to do this Looking for our eternal reward. See, part of the problem is our our perspective gets stuck on what's in front of us. And we don't ever see past the problem or through the problem. We see right up to the problem and then we stop. And no wonder we get overwhelmed. You can block out the, the noonday sun with a quarter. All you have to do is bring it close enough to your eye. And that's what we do with our social problems. We bring them right up into our our vision and then we can't see around them or over them or even through them. But listen to this parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 14 verses 12 to 14. He said to the man who had invited him to a dinner party he says when you give a dinner or a banquet do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. In other words, don't just hang out with your own social class and family. He says in verse 13, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You see how he takes his eyes sort of off of people to sort of like us and and sort of gets our heart moving toward people who are not like us and people who are in need and then he doesn't leave us there but he then sort of lifts our vision all the way to the resurrection all the way to the second coming of Christ and said listen if you love people like this there's going to be a reward for you at the resurrection of the just and you know what happens when we don't think like that? Here's what we worry about are these people getting over on me? Are they really in need? You know, ah, I don't know, what are they going to do with the money? Well, those may be good prudential questions in their place, but they ought not be so powerful in our mind that they are bigger issues to us than the reward that comes. Caring for the lame and the crippled and the blind and those who are in need. So we want to be attracted more to glory and reward than we are repelled by undeserved need. And so we want our perspective set that we are neighbors. And if we live neighborly and involve those in our lives who are in need, Jesus promises us a great reward. In other words, beloved, caring for people in need is worth doing. For them and for us on the day of reward. So third thing in our perspective we got to be motivated by faith, beloved. We look at these big problems and these big issues and they're heartbreaking and we sit with families and we hear these experiences that some of us have had privilege to do or we take a missions trip and we're in Mubasa, Kenya, literally sitting on a heap of trash with people living in it and flies everywhere and the stench overpowering. How do you go take a mission trip like that? How do you go across the street and sit with people in their need and, and not be motivated by faith? This is what Jesus teaches us in Mark chapter 11 verses 22 to 26. And we'll, we'll end here. Jesus has just cursed the fig tree. And the next day they're walking and the disciples are like marveling that the fig tree has withered. They're like, yo, think that the tree you just cursed? And Jesus says this to them. Have faith in God. And that's worth word for sermon right there, period. Have faith in God. God. Then he says something else even more staggering. Truly I say to you whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart believes, but believes what he says will come to pass it will be done for him. Now at this point Jesus sounds like a, a word of faith teacher. Actually they are stealing and jacking up his teaching. But verse 34, therefore I tell you whatever you ask in prayer believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now this is, that's an unblushing um, bold promise from the Savior of the world who's able to answer our every need. Whatever you ask in prayer believing it will be yours. Now don't let little Dollar get in the way. Don't let Fred Price get in the way. Don't let Kenneth Copeland get in the way. Don't don't let those folks get in the way who've twisted this verse and made it about you having money and all this good stuff. But see Jesus there who says all power and authority has been given unto me the one who commands demons and heals the sick and calms the storms. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's the one promising to us that whatever we ask in faith, in prayer, we have our requests. And so wonder he begins with have faith in God. Have faith in God because I will do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. And how much will the God of mercy do if the people of mercy are asking not for themselves, but those who are in need? We got a lot of stuff to face, beloved, if we're going to be faithful. And by ourselves, we can do nothing. But this is our God who says, have faith in him and whatever we ask, he will give. So what will you ask this God? What will you ask Him to do in your life, with your need, with your desire for mercy? And what will we ask Him to do in our community with its needs and its desire for mercy? Pray inspired prayers. Big prayers. Have faith in God. And let's go to work. Let's pray together. Lord, we feel ourselves setting out to attempt something great for you. And we say, not unto us, not unto us, but to your name be all the glory. And we have read and learned from your word that unless we abide in you, the true vine, we can bear no fruit. But if we do, if we live in you, the true vine, and and your life flows over into us, then, then we can bear fruit that remains forever for the glory of your name. And Lord, in a world so, so caught up with itself, so easily given to selfishness, so easily given to preoccupation with me, myself, and I, oh God, you call us to die to self. And to live to you, to die to self, and to love our neighbor. Lord, help us to be merciful. We have received mercy through Christ on Calvary's cross. He took away our sin. He ended, Lord, the, the prospect of judgment. He purchased for us eternal life and righteousness and adoption into your family. Lord, let those truths flow out now from us to others, to doubters to those in danger of the fire, to those who need to be snatched back. Oh Lord, let us flow out with love, mercy, with faith and hope in abundant prayer that your will might be done and your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Do this for this little church and all your churches who love your gospel and love your son, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.